0: I'm talking with uh, Canadian nephrologist, Dr. Jason Fung. Um, Dr. Fung has really been one of the pioneers in uh, really re-energizing our understanding of the usefulness of uh, intermittent fasting and uh, and longer-term fasting. He's written a a number of books, uh, The Obesity Code, The Diabetes Code, um, he is co-founder of The Fasting Method, which is an online program that he really uh, uh, talks to patients uh, about um, long and short fasts for a variety of health conditions. And uh, Dr. Fong, it's great to talk with you. Let me, uh, let me start the, uh, the conversation by asking you a question that other clinicians have asked me is, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges for people trying Uh, to do intermittent fasting for the first time?
1: Well, the main thing that people worry about, there's two. One is uh, hunger. So they often wonder how they're going to deal with the problem of hunger. And that's something you really have to sort of, plan and advance and you have to uh expect it and then figure out a plan on how to deal with it so one of the things that people always think is that they're when they're hungry that they're just going to get more and more and more hungry and then they're not going to be able to tolerate it but that's not actually what happens when you fast the body actually gets hungry up to a certain point and then it's like a wave so it passes and then once you pass that wave then you're sort of at your baseline hunger. And what's really happened is that your body has taken the calories that it's needed from your stores, which is the glycogen in your liver or body fat. So if you look at uh, studies of, say, 24-hour fasting, you measure ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. What you see is that at breakfast, lunch, and dinner time, you see a spike in ghrelin, so people are hungry. And if you don't eat, Then ghrelin actually falls right back down to baseline, which means that whether you eat or not, by, you know, if you miss lunch by four o'clock, you're actually about the same level of hunger as if you had eaten. So, what you've done in essence is eaten a meal of those uh, body fat, for example. So, that's that's really important knowledge because people will then be able to, uh, they'll know what to expect. And they'll know that they just have to ride out that little bit of time. And it's not going to be continuous. That is, if they're fasting for 24 hours, it's not going to be 24 hours of constant hunger. It's really these waves of hunger that sort of come and they go. So that's probably the most important thing to know and understand. Uh, The second uh, thing that people always worry about is that they're doing some sort of permanent damage to their metabolism or something like that. And you hear this all the time where people say, oh, the fasting is going to put you into starvation mode, which is this idea that your body is going to start shutting down. So your body normally does require a certain number of calories for you know, the heart and the liver and the lungs to all function normally. So if you say, for example, you're burning 2,000 calories a day, people worry that if they fast, that their bodies will adjust by only burning 1,000 calories a day, which is obviously a very big Detriment if you're trying to lose weight. That's not actually what happens because, in, in the studies we have of fasting, for example, one study, they measured people on a four day fast. So they studied the me- metabolic rate at time zero, and then four days later, they measured again how many calories they're burning. And in fact, at day four, what they found was that they were actually burning about 10% more calories than at time zero. So your body actually is not shutting down when you fast. The body is actually activating itself. And this we've known for actually, you know, 100 years because as insulin falls, we increase other hormones. These are the counter-regulatory hormones. And those include the sympathetic nervous system, cortisol, and uh, noradrenaline. So in fact, your body is actually being activated. And that's why it maintains the metabolic rate much better than calorie-restricted diets. So, you know, again, understanding that fasting is not something that's really unusual. It's actually using body fat for exactly the reason we carry body fat, which is as a store of calories for us to use when there's no other, when you're not eating. So if you're a caveman and there's no food for two to three days, if you didn't have body fat, you'd be dead. So bears and lions and tigers and everybody carries body fat for the same reason. And what we're doing is we're using that body fat for the reason, the the, the specific reason that we have it. So there's nothing unusual about it and you're not doing permanent damage to yourself. So it's just a matter of being able to do it, you know, overcoming cravings, overcoming hunger. But you, you don't have to worry that you're doing some kind of real harm to your health.
0: The other question that uh, I get is, you know, losing muscle, uh, uh, losing muscle as opposed to fat. You you feel that your your metabolism stays the same, and you don't have any excess uh, muscle loss. Is is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. So there's there's been several studies
1: of um, intermittent fasting compared directly to calorie restriction. So the standard way that we tell people to lose weight is sort of cut 500 calories a day or constant calorie restriction. When you compare the two, there's two very interesting findings. One is that the lean mass is maintained much better with the fasting strategy. And the other thing is that you don't see the decrease in metabolic rate um, in, in, the, um, in the fasting uh, strategy compared to chronic calorie restriction so that's why calorie restriction sort of this idea that you should eat a low-fat diet six times a day small meal six times a day it's it's not really very uh effective studies bear it out and physiologically it doesn't make sense either because if you eat six times a day what's happening is that you're keeping your insulin levels high so as you eat when you eat insulin goes up and we know that insulin blocks lipolysis. That's its primary job. It stops you from burning fat because it makes you want to store fat. So if you're storing fat, you don't want to burn fat. So we've known for decades that insulin blocks lipolysis. Well if you have no longer have access to those fat stores, but you're only you're eating five hundred calories less, you your only choice is to burn five hundred calories less because you've got you can't access the stores of energy that you carry on your body. Fasting is different because it changes the entire hormonal uh, profile. That is insulin falls, which allows you to access those fat stores, which means that your body's like, hey, look, there's several hundred thousand calories of body fat. Why don't I just use it? Why do I need to shut myself down? It doesn't want to. So that's that's the reason. And with the, the lean mass, what we find is that it's the same thing. It's about um, you know several times better uh, at preserving lean mass. And it's because fasting, one of the counter-regulatory hormones is growth hormone. So when you fast, growth hormone goes up. So it can go up like three, four, five times the baseline. So when you start to eat again, your body's actually going to produce the proteins that it needs. And that's how it maintains lean mass much better than chronic calorie restriction. So both of those issues, the sort of starvation, um, you know, starvation mode and the lean muscle loss, both of them are concerns. But in fact, it's actually the the exact opposite. Those are two of the biggest advantages of fasting, not the two biggest disadvantages.
0: I see. And, that uh, leads me to my next question of the um, the amount of time that you need to fast so we've uh, you know there's the sixteen eight and then the twenty four hour fast et cetera et cetera. What do you counsel patients on or or tell uh, clinicians about that issue?
1: I think you can do very well it It depends on several factors one if you have a lot of hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance, then it's going to take you longer to get to that stage where insulin falls and you're starting to uh, burn stores of energy. Um, So if you have a very severe type 2 diabetic, for example, with a high insulin resistance, it may take longer. For most people who are relatively healthy, you're going to get there in 14, 16 hours for sure. Um, So you can do very well with a 16-8 16-8 sort of strategy, 24-hour strategy, also not very difficult to do.
0: Mm-hmm. So when I talk to patients about the benefits of fasting, I discuss, you know, potentially improved weight loss, improved insulin sensitivity, as you've started to talk about, um, you know, more time for these rest and repair processes, and then the benefits of short periods of ketosis. Um, are, are those the benefits that you see are there other benefits and could you kind of describe uh, briefly the the mechanisms associated with the benefits of inter, of intermittent fasting of getting to that that time frame
1: yeah there's actually a huge amount of benefits although a lot of them are still being sort of worked out so the main ones is weight loss and type 2 diabetes and those are relatively easy to understand if you don't eat your body will lower its blood sugars and therefore you can manage type 2 diabetes without medication same for weight loss if you don't eat your body is going to use the body fat so the downstream benefits are fairly clear if if you're overweight you're at higher risk of heart attacks and strokes and cancer there so there's Cancer is very interesting because there's a, a, quite a number of obesity-related cancers that have now been so-called designated, the, most, the, the two biggest being breast cancer and colorectal cancer. So therefore, weight loss would be expected to lower your risk of those. So there's a huge number of benefits there, but the direct benefits are very interesting of intermittent fasting because there's this sort of new research on uh, something called autophagy, which is a cellular cleaning process, became very topical uh, in 2016. The Nobel Prize uh, in Medicine was awarded to one of the pioneers of research on autophagy. And essentially what it is, is when you fast and your body has no nutrients, then what happens is that you start to break down certain proteins for energy. And it sounds really bad, but it's actually a very, very beneficial thing. Because what you do is you break down these sort of subcellular parts, uh, their organelles, and the oldest sort of junkiest organelles get thrown into the furnace, they get burned for energy. And when you start to eat again, because growth hormone is high, what you do is you use the amino acids and you rebuild the proteins where you need it. So what we're describing is an entire sort of rejuvenation process, So uh, the, the, the researcher who won the Nobel Prize, he called it the cellular recycling system. So we're talking about a whole process of potentially being able to affect diseases of inflammation, diseases like cancer where there's excessive growth, diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Uh, where you have all this excessive buildup of protein, inflammation. So just this huge number of diseases, chronic diseases, that potentially could benefit from the application of intermittent fasting, which is fascinating because it's an entirely free and natural treatment, yet it seems to be incredibly powerful against these. Now, there's going to be more research, of course, into these diseases, um, but, you know, just an incredible, uh, you know, potential uh, waiting to be unlocked. I mean, it's, uh, you know, just the weight loss benefits and that two diabetes itself is going to decrease risk of, uh, you know, kidney disease and neuropathy and nephropathy and retinopathy and all of these, you know, amputations and, you know, microvascular, macrovascular diseases, but, you know, and then on top of that, you're going to have these other potential benefits, and maybe even uh, anti-aging um, processes. So it's just incredible.
0: What about what I mentioned, and uh, could you amplify a little bit on, obviously when you uh, go 16 or 24 hours, you start to get into ketosis, or at least mild uh, nutritional ketosis. Do you think that's one of the benefits of fasting, and if so, can uh, somebody on a ketogenic diet, would, or is there some overlap with that?
1: Yeah, there's a huge overlap with that. So ketogenic diets are not fasting, but they are very low carbohydrates, so there's increased ketones. And some people have talked about perhaps the brain being able to utilize it better. Obviously, there's the benefits for epilepsy, so that was the original use of the ketogenic diet was in these children's epilepsy, but it seems to sort of soothe the brain and so on. So there's a lot of research on the effect of ketones on the brain because the brain is the primary user of these ketones. So normally the if you have a lot of glucose, the brain is basically just using glucose. But when you don't eat either by fasting or by using a ketogenic diet, uh, what happens is that your brain can't get enough glucose to work properly. So therefore, up to about 75% of the energy needs of the brain will now be satisfied with ketones. And it may put it into a sort of a protective state. And that's why it, we know it's effective for epilepsy, but uh, there are people who are talking about it for neuro rehab and that sort of thing. It, it's really a fascinating uh, field. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's not a lot of firm evidence uh, for that. We know that, for example, the brain is better able to tolerate hypoglycemia. So in, um, in people who have fasted in the 1960s, they did this fascinating studies where people did, uh, they, they fasted for 60 days, and then the researchers gave them a big IV push of insulin just to see what would happen push the glucose down into the 30s, I think, and, um, you know, there's a level where most people would seize, and these people are completely asymptomatic. So this means that the brain is able to tolerate a lot more when it's using ketones. So people who are doing deep um, like, uh, diving medicine and so on are really looking at ketogenic diets for sort of this neuroprotective and extreme environments for astronauts and these sort of things. So really sort of a lot of fascinating uh, data coming out about the benefits of ketogenic diets. Fasting, of course, does both. So it not only puts you into a state of ketosis, and it's really the fastest way to get into ketosis, um, but it also has some of these other benefits. So for example, autophagy is regulated mostly by mTOR, Uh, which is controlled by dietary protein. So a ketogenic diet is going to lower insulin, but it's not going to lower mTOR to the same extent. So you may not get benefits with autophagy and that sort of benefit on a ketogenic diet. But some of the benefits of the fasting could certainly be from the ketones it produces, predominantly for the brain health. Not only do you get ketones, but you're using, um, you know, you're allowing insulin to fall, you're allowing Growth hormones would go up, for example. So one of, the, um, one of the things is something like a disease such as osteoporosis. It's like, well, what if this natural increase in growth hormone could have a benefit in terms of bone health? Because we don't know what causes osteoporosis for most people. We know, for example, that in China... They have very low levels, or they used to have very low levels of osteoporosis. And then the minute they migrate, that these Chinese women, the minute they migrate to uh, America, their risk goes up and up. And nobody knows why. And it may be because you don't have these periods of fasting. And perhaps, this is all theoretical, but perhaps this increased growth hormone is going to play a role in maintaining bone health.
0: Let me ask you just a couple of more questions. One is around, uh, you know, this issue of chronobiology, which uh, is uh, a, certainly a growing field. And do you think uh, vis-a-vis fasting, vis-a-vis intermittent fasting, is there a particular uh, time of day that one should be fasting? Yeah, I think
1: that the it, there there is definitely an impact. So if you look at the circadian rhythm for hunger, for example, um, you get the least hunger at 8 a.m. This is just if you take an average of people, and the in most hunger you find at 8 p.m. So in or if you're you know if you're eating and you're not hungry, that's not a great strategy for weight loss. Um, but we also know that if you take uh, the same meal at 8 a.m. versus 8 p.m., the insulin response is much higher at 8 p.m., uh, probably because of the increased counter-regulatory hormones you have uh, just before you wake up. So that's the, 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 the surge just before you wake up of cortisol and so on. So when you take that into account, the, the optimal time to sort of take your meal if you're doing fasting is sort of in the mid-afternoon sort of thing you don't really want to eat too late at night because you're going to be more hungry which means that you're going to tend to eat more and then you're also for what you eat you're going to have more of an insulin effect so that's going to tend to store it more so late night eating is a big big problem and you see that with the nighttime workers they're eating really when they shouldn't be eating we should be sleeping uh at that time Uh, at the same time um if you take a, uh, you know, eat a big breakfast, if you'd like to, that's fine. But a lot of people just aren't hungry. So therefore, it's easy to sort of just keep going through that fasting period. So you have to balance those. And then the other thing to consider is that if you fast and you eat mostly just breakfast and lunch, it's okay. But it's it's not always easy to fit into a normal schedule because you really have to build this around your life. So if you're if you're normally so I normally eat dinner with my family every night, for example. So skipping dinner every night is is a big problem. It's just going to completely disrupt the normal sort of social fabric of how I normally work. So therefore, uh, I often do um, sort of my fasting during the day. So I'll often skip breakfast because it's the easiest thing. And sometimes I'll skip lunch. And then that gets you into a twenty four hour fast without really any disruption of my working day. Even though that late night meal or the, the later meal is actually not optimal from a chronobiology standpoint. It would be actually optimal to have a large midday meal, which is in fact what a lot of Europeans like the Spanish and so on. They they, they used to take their heaviest meal in the midday, and they did very well with that.
0: It sounds to me like there's a lot of ways in which you can implement uh, intermittent fasting into uh, a lifestyle to make it both uh, practical and worthwhile.
1: Yeah, and and the key is that it's flexible. So it's not like you have to do it every single day. You don't even have to do the same thing every day. So you could skip breakfast one day and skip dinner the next day if it fits into your schedule. Or if you're, you know, it was the holidays. So I actually did very little fasting. I was going out quite a lot. And then now, in the last week, you know, I'm currently on day four of a fast because I want to sort of catch up with all the holiday weight gain. Uh, and that's that's the that's the benefit. It's like once you understand it, you can apply it um, to not only your own schedule, but your your schedule is it changes. Like holidays, vacations, they're going to be completely different than a normal working day. When I'm working in the office, for example, then it's easy to skip breakfast and lunch. If I'm uh, on vacation, it's not so easy. If everybody else is going out for uh, breakfast, so. But I can, I can still work that in because then when I get back to my regular day, I can do more fasting or less fasting so that I get to an optimal sort of health.
0: Mm-hmm. The last question, Dr. Fung, is um, just uh, kind of briefly, are there particular groups of people that you just don't uh, start them on some sort of intermittent fasting program?
1: It depends on your definition. So, if you think about fasting, it's actually part of a normal cycle. So, the normal cycle should be feeding and then fasting. So, the very word breakfast means the meal that breaks your fast. So, well, you can't break a fast if you're not fasting. So, and and, and French is the same. But the French term for breakfast is déjeuner, and jeuner is too fast. So, what it means is that even the language itself implies that there must be a fasting period. There should be a feeding period, and there should be a fasting period. So, the feeding period, you're going to store calories. During the fasting period, you're going to use those calories. So, it's it's not it's not something that you you know it, it is sort of cruel and unusual punishment. It's actually just a part of your everyday life. If you go back to the sort of 60s and 70s. People would eat at 6 p.m. dinner and uh, breakfast at like 8 a.m. So that's a 14-hour period of fasting. Every single day that people did without fasting, it, without thinking about it, or even labeling it fasting. But, you know, that's what it, that's what it is. Uh, so, so really, there, if, if you're talking about shorter fast, like a 14-hour fast, everybody should be doing that. That's what everybody did in the 70s, and nobody had a problem. In fact, there was very little obesity. Yet they're eating white bread, they're eating white pasta, they're eating ice cream, that kind of thing. But they're not eating all the time. They're, they're they're eating during the times they're eating, and they're not eating during the times that they're not supposed to eat. If you want to lose weight, though, then you can push it into a little higher, so 16 hours, uh, 18 hours for sure. Once you get to the longer fast, then you have to start being careful because people like children, uh, pregnancy, breastfeeding should be careful because those are times where nutrition is very important and you don't want to, you know, inadvertently deprive yourself of the proper nutrition. Um, people who are on medication, for example, can fast. People with two diabetes can fast, but they have to be monitored because those medication doses may need to change. So there's definitely a, a role. It's, it's sort of like a tool your toolbox and the longer it is the more powerful it is but at the same time the more careful you have to be
0: do you do any professional training uh, in terms of a a program um
1: i don't have one specifically i mean in that fasting method program it's on the fastingmethod.com we have several courses so we have beginner courses intermediate courses and also an advanced course and the advanced course is actually lectures I'm giving to specialist physicians for training. So, in that in that program, you can get access to sort of everything um, there. It's, it's, so it's a series of um, I'm sort of like on lecture two, but it'll be a six or seven part lecture series, uh, all aimed at the sort of clinician level, uh, so that they have a good understanding of sort of metabolic disease and so on. So if people are looking for it, they can certainly join and and, and go on to the advanced courses and listen to these lectures.
0: I really appreciate you taking a little time, Jason, to to talk with me and, and that we can get this information out to other clinicians.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you very much.